Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live. We are in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the midst of the presidential election, which has gotten a lot of attention, not only for the candidates that are running on both sides of the aisle, but also for the media coverage of it. And it seems as though in the past 10, 15, 20 years, the media has gotten a lot of coverage from the media and that people are increasingly concerned about how the media is covering events and the change of journalism from a pursuit of truth and and trying to expose things to being a business and a, a form of entertainment. And We're really excited today to talk to an expert in the history of American journalism who has traced some of these developments in the industry through the second half of the 20th century. It is Matt Pressman, a recent graduate of Boston University, and will be joining the faculty at Seton Hall University in the fall. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. So we're really excited that you're here to talk about the transformation of American journalism, and that is the subtitle of your dissertation, which is Remaking the News, The Transformation of American Journalism, 1960-1980. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about your background, because not only do you have a PhD in history from Boston University, but at Seton Hall you're going into a journalism department in part because you have a lot of journalism experiences. You were a writer at Vanity Fair. Uh, Yeah, I worked at Vanity Fair for eight years, uh, primarily as an editor in an editorial capacity rather than as a writer, but I also did uh, a fair amount of writing for VF.com about the news business specifically. So I have that, that combination of journalism working experience and as a, as a historian, my research specialty is the histor- history of American journalism. So I, I try to combine those, those two elements of my working life in, in both my teaching and my scholarship. And Vanity Fair is one of those publications that... I, th- I think it's really interesting because it's diverse, because it would have someone like you who would write about journalism, the media, the business, but then they also have these sort of splashy cover stories of musicians, entertainers. So there's this interesting mix between quote-unquote hard news and then entertainment news. And for you, as someone who wrote about the media, was, was there ever a, a sense of what you're doing may not fit with the publication and what the publication was about? Like, was, was that a challenge? Before I started working at Vanity Fair, I had some preconceived notions about the the cover stories and, and the fact that there was a, a focus on a lot of a focus on entertainment and fashion and things that didn't necessarily interest me as much as other topics. But uh, I really came to appreciate the the mix as as the years went on and I worked there. And this used to be more of the norm, really, in American journalism: the concept of of a general interest publication hmm. or or network and it's only in more recent years that things have become split into more narrow niches so if you think of a maybe the most popular publication in American history Life magazine hmm. that sort of fit a similar mold in that they had a lot of serious political stories and and hard-hitting photo exposés but they also had a lot of celebrity material and kind of uplifting stuff about just everyday life in America, as the as the title said. So I, I came to really appreciate that aspect of, of Vanity Fair, that it managed to, to juxtapose the celebrity profiles, the cover stories, with more in-depth reported pieces, 
with commentary, mm. and uh, and I really I enjoyed that aspect of it, and and I think that the 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 readership benefits from it too, from getting expo- exposed to to stories that they might not otherwise. Yeah, that's a really good point, and and I'll admit that I'm not a regular reader of Vanity Fair. When a story that I see sort of across Twitter or something strikes my interest, I'll pull it up. But it, it, it's true that that you know when you talk about diversity, like a newspaper is very diverse too. Like it has a, a life section, a, a real estate section, sports. Like not everything in a newspaper is hard news. So of course, with a magazine. Even stuff like Time sometimes doesn't have quote unquote hard news. Like there, there's no rule that says you have to be hard news all the time to produce hard news. Like you can do both. Yeah, certainly. But today, of course, most people aren't consuming their their news the same way they did in right. the in the heyday of Time magazines, the big daily newspapers, or even Vanity Fair for that matter. People consume their news like you said through through social media or they have more narrow interests and they don't necessarily seek out news on other topics. And, and of course, that's the reason why, one of the main reasons why uh, a lot of more long-established media organizations are struggling. Mm-hmm. And some of them are really trying to hit this new model. Some of them are working, some of them aren't. Like, something like the Huffington Post comes up and, and has been quite successful and very profitable Whereas some newspapers maybe haven't been. Not as not sure how profitable Huffington Post is. Sorry, to interrupt. Okay, no, but, but they, they, it's they valuable. Have, they have a high valuation. High valuation. Yes. How's that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, and other like newspapers are falling um, in terms of what their value would be, and mm-hmm. it's, it's so it's it's weird. Like, how do you hit the model, and how do you make sense? Because one of the things that people get mad about, I think, with the Huffington Post and other things like clickbait articles. Mm-hmm. That you know, ten reasons why this or this, right? And it's total clickbait, and there's nothing really to it. And people get really frustrated with it and say, "Well, what happened to news?" Right. And it was really fascinating to me in researching and writing my dissertation how many parallels I found, especially in the 1970s era, between what what you just talked were talking about in terms of people lamenting that news is becoming less serious <laughs> or that. Or that the the audience is being pandered to. Mm. This is exactly the kind of thing that people were talking about in the 1970s. And again, it was because there was a major shift underway then, just like there is now. And some of the root causes were the same. Today, it's because people are getting their news from other sources. There's new technologies that are changing the way information and entertainment is distributed. And similarly, back in the 70s, it was when really... TV had started to come into its into its own as a as a news medium the previous decade, mm-hmm. but it took a little catching up before the the newspapers and magazines realized what a dire threat this was. Mm-hmm. Right, and this is that's interesting because in in my research on radio in the 1930s, one of the things that in Canada at least a lot of newspapers were saying was that radio can't be allowed to air news because that'll be the death of newspapers. And it's very similar to what people say now about the death mm-hmm. of newspapers. And I, so I'm always skeptical when people say newspapers are, are dead. They might be dead in the printed form soon, but I don't think newspapers are, are dead necessarily. So, you know, it, it's interesting that you, you note that these arguments come up in the 60s and 70s as well. And I'm curious as to why you chose the 60s and 70s to study specifically Obviously, there's a lot that happens in that 20-year stretch, but was there anything in particular that 
really struck you as unique about those 20 years? Or was it really more the social change, the cultural changes that happened through the 60s and 70s, and you wanted to trace that through journalism? When I set out, my goal was to try to, to put a finger on when American journalism had adopted the characteristics that most people associate with, with it today, when it sort of became contemporary in a sense. And I really wasn't sure when that happened, so I, I just did a kind of thought experiment and, and thought about com- comparing what a typical newspaper looked like at certain points in time. I augmented the thought experiment a little bit by going on ProQuest Historical Newspapers Database, which mm-hmm. is a terrific tool for any anyone who's used it. And I found that if, if you look at a typical newspaper from 1940 and you look at the same newspaper from 1960, it's not really all that different. And similarly, if you look at a newspaper from 1980 versus a newspaper from the year 2000, it's not all that different. But if you look at the newspaper, you know where I'm going with this, between, from 1960 to 1980, it's enormously different in, in form, in content, in everything. And so that, to me, obviously indicated that these were the years where the fundamental change happened, and I, I tried to, to uncover what exactly took place and, and why and why it mattered. And now you use the word journalism in the title. So for you, is journalism newspapers, or are you looking at a broader scope of news coverage to include radio, TV, magazines? Or are you, are you focused primarily on, on papers? Well, I had to try to use a couple of news organizations as, as case studies because it's just too big a topic right, yeah. to, to tackle without doing that, at least from a historian's perspective. So the two newspapers I look at primarily are the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. So yes, my two main case studies are newspapers, but I, I understand journalism certainly to encompass TV news, magazines, the radio, the whole, the whole scope. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think there are really similar, similar forces at work in, in all these mediums, and uh, I try as much as I can to, to show how, how these forces and changes were taking place right. in other media as well. So some of the things that are forcing change, or at least that maybe highlight the role of journalism, to me in this 20-year in this stretch is, is the violence of the 60s and 70s and the very public violence. You know, I've, I've talked, I think on the show in the past and certainly in classes before, about the role of television in the civil rights movement and how central television Mm -hmm. was to the success of the civil rights movement. Certainly. And it's sort of this notion of public violence. And you see it to a certain degree with the JFK assassination, certainly the RFK assassination, very public violent acts, uh, Altamont, the the murder at Altamont. So these are, are violent things that happened in the 60s and 70s. And I'm wondering, is the violence and the public violence that goes along with that, not to mention what happens in Ohio with the murders uh, at Kent State, State and the protests with the Vietnam War. like it's a, It seems like a very turbulent, violent time. The DNC uh, in Chicago. Chicago like, there's just so yeah, much. Sure, sure. There's yeah. just so much. Like yeah. there's, there's so we many go on. <laughs> signature violent events during this 20-year period. Is that a central tenet of journalism and playing up of violence during the 60s and 70s? I'm not so sure it's violence as such, but I think just this era was characterized by such profound ideological conflict and such deep divisions in society 
and such turbulence that that it it really made the era ripe for change and 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 emotions ran so high on on all sides really obviously the the violence is a big part of it but even you know most of the the things that that you that you mentioned happened in 1970 or, or earlier mm-hmm. but you know the tensions run pretty high for at least another four or five years even though there's less obvious examples of, of violence and I think it's it's really just a time when when things seem kind of up for grabs one of those moments in American history where at least some people think that there's a possibility that society and, and the political system will be reimagined in a, in a huge way and I think that that tends to be situation in which radical change gets at least debated and that's interesting because a lot of what you're saying right there is seems similar to what's going on right now um Mm -hmm. like this fear of radical change Uh, i think on both sides people on the left are concerned about people on the far right and people on the right are concerned about people on the far left and it, it turns into this to me very damaging rhetoric that doesn't allow there to be any real conversation and is that similar to what's happening and sort of does that lead to a fragmentation in the journalism or do those sorts of things that you're talking about does that filter into the business of journalism into newsrooms i think for the big mainstream news organizations which have a a stated policy of of trying to cover the news from a sort of centrist perspective without taking a point of view. I don't think it changes their coverage all that much. I think there are a lot of parallels between that period and today, and one of them is is certainly new forms of media springing up. The 60s and and early 70s were the heyday of the alternative press and the underground press in the U.S., and and a lot of uh, radical newsletters and and newspapers and, and magazines were started, and and wire services and and radio networks and really just and TV networks, every kind of journalism under the sun. And uh, I think you're, we're seeing similar forces at work today, and again, because the barriers to entry are, are low, lower than they've been in years. Mm-hmm. And this was also the case in the 1960s. I know that in your work you've, uh, you've studied a little bit about the importance of, of technological change, mm-hmm. and that was happening in the 60s too with offset printing becoming it made it easier to to produce these newsletters and and newspapers and and of course today it's, you don't need to have a a physical presence in order to have a, an important journalistic vehicle and and so yeah I think it's 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 similar in a lot of ways and and people who want to get their point of view out there and who have a strong ideological point of view are are able to do so and and add their voice to to the chorus but one of the things that people say a lot now is that because there's this great access to material, essentially people operate in an echo chamber that you only seek out the people who mm-hmm. say what you believe. And I'm wondering, was the same thing true with a lot of these underground publications? And were they playing to a base that basically agreed with they, what they were saying? Or did they have wider circulation? And were they actually successful in reaching the type of people who may not agree with them initially to sort of pull them in to their to their perspective. I mean, I'm not really an expert on the underground press or the alternative press, but I, I don't think it's really analogous to the to the media sphere today. 
I think that most people who consumed those publications, and they were mostly on the left in those years, they were also getting their news from mainstream sources, maybe even primarily, although of course they had a lot of distrust and, and contempt for for those sources and for anyone over 30 as the same <laughs> went. But I think the what you were talking about today, echo chambers, and you know people use other uh, catchy terms to, to describe it, like filter bubble, right. uh, information cocoon, that I think is, is very much a phenomenon of the social media age. Mm. And I think in in the 60s and 70s period, that that wasn't really the case, no. Now, in studying, though, the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times as your two major case studies, I, I wonder, because those are two major urban markets where if you didn't like either one of those papers, you had a lot of alternatives that you could you could go to. What about if you lived in, you know, Wichita? Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I'm just picking a random town that I would mm-hmm. assume probably has only one or had only one daily, mm-hmm. if it was even a daily. Yeah. Does that maybe change the understanding of journalism, given that your two case studies are urban and there's more competition for readers? Part of the reason I chose those two news organizations was because I wanted to look at two really influential ones, and also they both underwent a very different evolution during this period. A lot of people don't know that prior to 1960, the LA Times was a very staunchly conservative paper. But I also want to maybe take issue a little bit with your supposition that there was more competition in the market that the LA Times and New York Times operated in and, and fewer options for somebody in a you know, mid-sized city like Wichita. The LA Times was, was really the, pretty much the only game in town for the, you know, the, one of the biggest and wealthiest metropolitan areas in the country. They, thanks to a, a somewhat shady deal with the Hearst Corporation in 1962, the LA Times agreed to close down their afternoon newspaper in return for Hearst closing down their morning newspaper. Uh-huh. And after that, which that Robert Kennedy at the Justice Department approved for, uh, for reasons unknown. <laughs> um, but after that, the LA Times was, was really the only newspaper someone could buy if they wanted a, a big, fat broadsheet in the morning, uh, and that's what a lot of people wanted and felt like was a necessary part of their daily lives, and it's right. part of the reason the LA Times was the most profitable paper in the country for, for many years. And even the New York Times, after uh, a wave of, of strikes and, and labor issues in the New York newspapers in the 1960s, they were really the only serious morning newspaper in New York, apart from the Wall Street Journal, which was more of a specialized right. business newspaper, especially in, in those years. And as for the, the reader in, in Wichita, you know, yeah, maybe there were two dailies back then, I'm not totally sure. Um, but even assuming there was only one, then, you know, there were still a lot of suburban papers, weeklies, you know, you've got news magazines, got radio, of course. So yes, the, the media market wasn't nearly as fragmented as it is today. But there was still a lot of a lot of competition and a lot of options, and the the newspapers felt this competition so uh, so intensely and really felt like if they didn't if they didn't do more to attract readers and advertisers, they were going to be facing a serious crisis, and that's part of the reason that they they made a lot of far-reaching changes in those years. For instance, this is a period where newspapers start focusing a lot more on soft news, start creating new sections devoted to 
to lifestyles and things like that and focus a lot more on the concept of of providing service to the reader you know news you can use became right, a yeah. sort of much much ridiculed slogan yeah. but uh, it was really something that that newspaper uh, publishers and, and executives felt was necessary for them to add to the package if they wanted to stay competitive in the years to come. And yeah, this is one of the things that I find really interesting about news and the development of journalism is this idea of news as a business. And really what you're talking about there is you have to attract people because sure you want to report hard news and you want to you know, you know do all that investigative work, but if nobody buys the paper, you can't pay for that. So you need to attract people somehow. And, you know, there's, you know, the, the stereotypical thing of the paper boys on the street, like, screaming out the headlines in the middle of the day, right? And this, this effort to attract readers, and I would refer to it as a, a commodification of the news, at least in a Canadian context. Because mm. when the CBC started doing news, um, they weren't allowed to advertise on the news. Like, the news just had to be news, like, the advertisements. Right weren't allowed and, and then as as we go along eventually you get ads and you're trying to make money off of news coverage and, and in the United States obviously it's a very different different environment but that had always existed you always had to sell papers you always had to get people attracted to what what you were doing and certainly things like ladies pages as some papers called them were that were in existence for a really long time so why is there such a drastic change in that direction through the 60s and 70s? What is so different that forces news organizations to go in that direction in such a dramatic way that forces a, a real reconsideration of journalism? The, that tension that you talk about between sort of the public service mission of journalism and, and the, the profit motive, the necessity of, of turning a profit, I think that's... That's really always been there, uh, at least since the first days of the commercial press in the United States in the in the 1830s. So I'm not sure that, that that's what's new. I mean, one of the reasons that, that the New York Times kind of pioneered this new model of, of serious nonpartisan journalism starting when Adolph Oakes bought it in 1896 was because... Oaks felt like that was the only niche. You know, he, he right. couldn't compete with with the yellow press. He couldn't hope to make money that way. And he sort of made a, a virtue of necessity. You know, he all the best cartoonists were taken, and so he said, "Well, we're we're too serious for cartoons. We're not going to have cartoons in our paper." Um, at least that's how the story goes. But I think what was new in the '60s and '70s period is that the the competition just got so much stiffer. You know, yes, radio was a threat, and and journalists, print journalists, talked about how you know we have to start having more interpretation in our in our stories, and the, the news magazines were also doing more interpretation. But it wasn't really until the '60s, where six, 1963 TV newscasts expand from 15 minutes to a half an hour, and the news magazines and specialty magazines and the alternative press and the suburban press and news radio makes a resurgence in this era too and if you add on to that the fact that a lot of the affluent urban residents who these papers had depended on and their advertisers wanted to reach they're moving out to the suburbs right. in this period just all these economic forces at once combining to uh, to paint a really bleak future for mm -hmm. these organizations and so they had to overcome some of these some of these high-minded qualms about wanting to 
to serve the public good only and to do just really serious stuff all the time. Mm. And th- there was a lot of disagreement in, in newsrooms and in executive offices of newspapers on you know how much they should go in the direction of, of reader service, how many you know whether the new sections they add should all be on sort of lifestyle topics and, and soft topics. There was a big battle at the New York Times over what their their last final rotating section was going to be for the other in the 70s and they still have these the the weekday special sections you know there's one on on the home and there's one on food and the the final one there was a big debate a sort of battle between the editor-in-chief at the time Abe Rosenthal and and uh head of the business side a guy named Walter Matson and um Matson wanted to wanted the special section to be about fashion, which is a natural fit for advertisers. There's a ton of fashion advertising, yeah. especially in those days. Yeah. Um, but Rosenthal thought that that would sort of tip the paper, were his words, um, to just too much soft stuff. And so eventually Rosenthal prevailed, and instead of fashion, the final rotating weekday section was devoted to science and technology. Okay. Um, which in the end wound up being a pretty good fit for advertising too and because as this was sort of as the 80s were dawning and we were mm. about to get we were about to get into the age they they couldn't have known it at the time but the age of personal computing and and tech yeah. gadgets and there was a lot of advertising behind that too and it was a it was a good fit for this section so it it worked out well for them <laughs> yeah yeah and but did journalists necessarily care about it, like if you're in the White House press corps, say, mm-hmm. and you're in D.C. writing for the New York Times, do you necessarily care that they're adding food writers? Like, does that? It's because it doesn't really change your right. job at all. So, so did the people on the ground who were doing yeah. the quote-unquote hard news, did they care much? Probably not. Probably not. Most people they figure, you know, well, we want to make sure that the newspaper is is successful and profitable, so they can continue to expand and you know send and open more bureaus and, and send people on, on long assignments. The, the, the ones who cared were more the maybe uh, ivory tower types, you know, kind of uh, traditionalist-minded columnists and, and opinion writers, um, journalism professors maybe, some of them. <laughs> but there were certain, there, there was kind of, there was a lot of, a lot of hand-wringing among, among more traditionalist-minded journalists uh, a, a couple at the New York Times, in in particular, were really up in arms about these developments. But they were, they, they weren't really the decision makers anymore. So that they were sort of powerless to stop it, especially when the the business imperatives were were suggesting so strongly that this was the way they had to go. So if these people don't care, and it doesn't really affect their jobs that much, and sort of their day to day operations, then the fact that papers are adding these sections and going more towards these these types of stories does that really ultimately change the face of journalism is it is it merely a situation where they're adding stuff without necessarily losing that hard good insightful uh, investigative work is it is there something that is subtracted from it in my personal opinion no not really hmm. and i don't i don't think there's anything wrong with having uh, the, the front page not entirely given over to the goings-on in, in Washington or the state capitol or, or city hall or, or abroad. And, you know, if you look at front pages today, probably at least half of the stories on, on most newspaper front pages are, are going to be more soft news, human interest, that sort of thing. 
So no, personally, I don't think anything anything is mm. is lost really, and I kind of think it's unfortunate when when people talk in a sort of dismissive way about soft news. You know, the term itself is kind of unfairly dismissive. Although I don't I, I don't know that there's a better one out there. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean, well, news. I, I mean, just use news. I mean, news is news, yes. right? Like news is <laughs> is sort of just what people care about, right? Like it's mm-hmm. a it's a big story people care about. It. The the fact that a Kardashian does something <laughs> like sure it's not it's not going to tip this balance of power in the world but enough people care about it that it, it it's a news and it's newsworthy like we may be t- dismissive of the Kardashians just like personally I would be but enough people care about them then okay fine it's news right yeah and I think the the, the definition of what's newsworthy that that's something that really changes during this era. And it's not only soft news, I think kind of a related development, although it might not seem so on the surface, is that there's an expansion of the definition of important news to include uh, perspectives and groups that had previously been marginalized. Right. And you know, par- partly this is a result of the advocacy by, by people involved in the so-called rights revolutions of the 60s and 70s. So women's rights... Yeah. Um, civil rights, minority rights, and stories that previously when newsrooms had been pretty much entirely directed by white men, they didn't really register those other perspectives. And uh, there's actually a very insightful article that the editor-in-chief of the LA Times wrote in 1975 where uh, he talks about the fact that, he says, you know, 10 years or so ago in a story about the police, you know, you only go to the police to, for their version of events. You wouldn't even talk to the alleged perpetrator. And he, he listed some other ex- examples as well. But uh, essentially, a broader range of, of voices sort of merited consideration and stories that might have seemed marginal or not really worth exploring or certainly not worth putting on the first page or even the third page, they become a bigger part of the, of the package. Mm-hmm. And it's part of that, you mentioned sort of the the minority part of that. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of it could be gendered as well, which you sort of alluded to, that quote-unquote women's pages become more mainstream, and people view that often as soft news. And so there's a gender mm-hmm. component to it. So the, the pushback against soft news is, to a certain extent, perhaps as you say, these white men who have always been in control or always been in charge of sort of what went out and it's based on what their worldview of what is important, that starts to change. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And and the the women's pages became a, a big battleground in, in this era for for a lot of different reasons. Um, first, the the very designation women's news people start to realize is is totally outdated and dismissive and demeaning. But at the same time, the, what had been the, the province of the women's page, things like the home and, and fashion and lifestyles, becomes the, the newspaper executives start to realize that this is could be an important part of our coverage going forward from a financial perspective. Because right. people want to read this stuff and advertisers want to advertise there. So these are becoming a bigger part of the paper, at the same time as the editors are trying to figure out, well, what do we do about this stuff we used to call women's news? And where do we put this news about the feminist movement, which initially most of the press treated as, 
as kind of a joke, and then they finally had to take it seriously uh, when they started really winning more uh, recognition and, and legal victories in the early 70s. Um, and although a lot of the a lot of the stories that probably merited coverage on the front page, or at least uh, in the toward the front of the main section that had to do with women, you know, things like sexual harassment, cases, rape law, abortion, things like that, they often wound up back in the the women's section. Mm. It wasn't called that anymore. It would be called right. something else. But people still sort of looked at it that way, and it was seen as, as a less prominent news placement. So there was uh, a lot of a lot of back and forth as to what the proper way to cover this stuff was. Right, and it really does come down to sort of the, the mindset of those, those at the top, So, which, which leads me to wonder, like, who is in charge of at least the two papers that, that you're looking at, and is there any sort of sea change generally? Because what you see through the 60s and 70s is the, the, the increased awareness of the violation of rights of, minor, of a lot of minority groups around the country. Do the changes that happen on the ground in a lot of places, are those reflected in newsrooms, uh, particularly amongst those who are making decisions on, on what constitutes mm-hmm. news? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it filters up really slowly. So, you know, at first, the, you know, in the early 60s, the, certainly the, almost all the editors are, are white men and, and most of the reporters, too. And then this wave of urban riots happens in the mid-60s and they say, oh my gosh, we need to hire some, some minority reporters. We can't cover this on our own. But it takes a lot longer for minorities to make it into the, into the ranks of the senior editors, right. which is, of course, where the important decisions are being made. And uh, similarly with women, the repertorial staff, apart from the women's page ghetto, as people often thought of it, was was almost entirely male, and even a little later than than uh, than they started bringing in more, especially black reporters, but also some other minorities and, and Latinos, especially in the case of the L.A. Times. Um, but it, it took them even longer to to really get serious about the importance of of having women assigned to all kinds of different desks and different beats, uh, and and it took a really long time for for women to become better represented in the ranks, the upper ranks of the, of the editors. Uh, and even today, I mean, it's, uh, women and minorities are, are very much underrepresented in the ranks of, of the decision makers at, at most major news organizations. So while I, I do think that the, the management became more aware of these other perspectives and the need to account for them, the, the sort of barriers remained in place for a long time. And there were and there were a lot of lawsuits. The New York Times faced two separate lawsuits in the 1970s, um, one from one accusing uh, gender discrimination, which was mostly led by newsroom employees, and then racial discrimination, right. which was brought by um, employees all across the organization. Uh, the LA Times, was uh, there was a, a, a gender discrimination complaint against them by a women's caucus there, but it never, uh, never reached the, uh, the level of a formal lawsuit. Hmm. Now, given that it's a, a lot of the same people who make these decisions at the upper levels, I feel compelled then to ask about the idea of bias and equal coverage or, or 
you know, unbiased, fair coverage of events. And one, if that's even if that's even possible, because there's the tradition, and I would assume it exists here, because it exists uh, in Canada, that the in the days leading up to the actual election, that each newspaper will endorse uh, a candidate, which is this really to mm-hmm. me very weird tradition that there will be an editorial saying this is who we support, which I find very strange, given that they present themselves as as giving unbiased coverage elsewhere in the mm-hmm. paper, mm-hmm. and yet the paper will officially endorse. To me, it's sort of this tacit acknowledgement that we're always kind of biased. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm wondering, when you're studying these, these organizations, given the inflexibility for, uh, given the way, the stagnant way in which they operate at, at the highest levels, does that influence the reporting itself, and is it even possible for there to be unbiased reporting and an unbiased journalist is can you get a center down the middle completely fair reporter is that a thing <laughs> that exists i don't think anyone would would really claim that that existed that the the proponents of of objectivity as an ideal would probably say it's something to strive for but no one will ever achieve it. And that, that was a line that, that Abe Rosenthal, the editor of the New York Times in this era, um, fell back on a lot. Right. You know, he, he sort of... It, it was a, a little bit of a, of, a, um, of a straw man argument that some of the... Especially the left-wing opponents of objectivity in this era were bringing up, you know, well, you're, well you can't be objective. It's not possible. And... Yes, you know, even the, the the proponents of objectivity would would acknowledge it's not wholly achievable, but you know we can still try. Right. Um, so I think that certainly bias and and one's personal background and and beliefs they're always going to factor in. It's it's just a matter of the the question really is well how much should reporters and editors try to suppress it or should they just be upfront about it. And you know, and lay it out there, and that's a debate that was that was happening—a very live debate in the 1960s and early 70s—and I think it's it's a pretty live debate today, also. Uh, and, and really, the the parameters of the debate have not, haven't changed very much. It's fascinating in in uh, 40 or 50 years, people are really talking about the same things in the same terms. And similarly, the the parameters of the debate on the right, the right wing critique of the media hasn't changed much. You, this is the period, the the late '60s period, especially where you start to hear um, the the same kind of critiques that get made today of, of liberal bias, of an mm-hmm. elitist news media that you know talks down to real Americans. Most most famously, voiced by Vice President Spiro Agnew, Nixon's vice president, in a series of speeches in, in 1969 and 1970 that. You know, could could just as easily come out of the mouth of a Republican politician mm. today, and uh, and it's been kind of the same refrain ever since from from both sides. I think the the left wing critique kind of faded for a while, but has has started to return uh, a lot in the past few years, and with the the Bernie Sanders movement, especially, and and a lot of antagonism among his supporters for the the mainstream press for uh, for their. Supposed um, poor treatment of, of Sanders and, and right. the issues that 
that he's advocating for. Do you think in studying these two papers, and I mean, you could argue what mainstream media even means, but perhaps the New York Times is as mainstream media as, as mainstream media gets. I think so. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it seems to me as though they're... The, the notion of a liberal bias would be true, but there's a limit to it because you know they don't want to go too far left, and the, the people who claim that Bernie Sanders doesn't get a fair shake would would certainly, I think, agree with that. Uh, but but are there are the claims of a liberal bias in the mainstream media? Is there a tenet of fact to that? Like, is it real that the mainstream press does have a, a left leaning position generally? Well, you can't deny that most people who work at these organizations tend to be left-leaning in their personal politics. That's certainly true. Um, and you were saying before, and I didn't quite get to it, about the editorial pages. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, most of these places have, have left-leaning editorial pages, and it, that certainly doesn't, uh, doesn't help their argument that, well, we're giving you our real views here, but just trust us. In the rest of the paper, we're being totally down the middle, and we're not letting those real views influence what we do at all and a lot of people especially in this you know in the more skeptical age we live in and I think really have lived in since the late 60s and early 70s a lot of people just have trouble accepting that they they don't believe it and they're not going to believe it and the editorial pages are really a holdover from a much much earlier era of Mm. of journalism you know where the editorial pages just represented the, the publisher's views and the part of the the appeal of owning a newspaper was that you, the publisher gets to you can you know, say what you want, gets to put his yeah, news out it's there. It's so and, exciting! Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy or create a newspaper because I'm <laughs> angry at this politician. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, certainly, bias is in the eye of the beholder in in a lot of cases. There there have been a lot of studies trying to determine whether this news organization's coverage of this or that was biased. On, on the whole. I think new journalists have certain values and professional values that can be associated with with liberalism in a way. Um, you know, in terms of uh, one of the major things I talk about in my dissertation and and the book to be is an adversarial approach toward those in power, and that's something that I think there, there's a strain of it going a lot farther back in American journalism, but. Uh, I think it, it really creeps back in again uh, around the late 60s and, and 1970s and a, you know, a skeptical approach and, and a, a tendency to, to challenge and question people who are wielding power, and not just in politics, uh, but also even in, in the business pages get a lot more adversarial in the 70s, and, and it even gets down to the sports pages, which you would not think is a, a likely place to, to find confrontational adversarial coverage. Right. But those kinds of values and, and sort of a, a belief in, in the possibility of, of uh, government doing something good, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, sort of, the sort of reform impulse tends to be something that a lot of journalists believe in. Mm-hmm. But, well, but does that reflect the country as a whole? Because there's this, th- there's this narrative that the United States loses its innocence through the, through the 1960s, mm-hmm. that... You have the assassinations of JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King. You have the violence that marks the end of the 1960s. You have the the Nixon Watergate scandal. Like all these things happen. So there's this idea that the United States, that Leave It to Beaver world, <laughs> crumbles over time through the 60s, and that the 
that Americans are increasingly angry and frustrated mm-hmm. with what's happening. And is that simply being reflected in the journalists? Or are they the ones perhaps leading the charge? Right. Or, or is right. there something else that I'm not picking up yeah. on? Yeah, this is definitely a, an age-old debate, too. You know, is, is journalism a mirror that reflects society, or is it a, a lamp that lights the way and right. you know, shows people what's what? Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit like the, like the chicken and the egg debate, but, yeah. um, but I think, personally, I would come down a little bit more on the, the mirror side, and I think that, that yeah, these, these changes, cultural changes, changes in attitudes, journalists are people, they, they live in the society like everyone else does, and they can't help but be influenced by, as you say, loss of innocence or um, what I think is one of the most marked characteristics of this period, an increasing skepticism, distrust in institutions. Um, it's, it's really remarkable, the, the poll numbers in this period when they, they measure Americans' faith in, in major societal institutions. They just plummet so fast, and for, and for everything. I mean, the press, certainly, but organized religion, the military, corporations, higher education, I mean, even, like, medical science, the, the people who express some trust in, in the leaders of these these uh, industries or institutions, it, it just drops precipitously, and, it, and it's uh, really remarkable to see. And, and it never recovers to right. anywhere near the levels of the of the early 1960s and the 1950s. Mm-hmm. I'm curious too, in terms of the presidency and how that approach that we're, we're talking about changes with respect to the presidency. And to me, one of the things that's really remarkable. In particularly being in Boston or in the Boston area for the year, is the Kennedy uh, legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's so present, and there's a lot of reasons for that certainly. But there is also this notion that he was you know, behind the scenes, you know, a womanizer and, and all these perhaps less uh, or these things that might damage <laughs> the legacy a little bit as this great leader and. Of course, he's in the early 1960s when, when he's the president. And then as the skepticism grows, uh, you also have later than Richard Nixon and you have the Watergate scandal. And I'm wondering if part of the reason why Watergate was such a big deal and so heavily pursued by the media um, was this skepticism. And if that skepticism has ex- had existed earlier in the 1960s, would JFK have been treated in a very different way, and is there a chance that the legacies of each president are fundamentally shaped by the nature of journalism in the era in which they were in office? Uh, Yeah, I I think you're right, but before I explain what I think happened, I want to try to correct one thing about a very common misconception, I think, about about Watergate, um, that the, the press took the lead. You know, the press almost came very close to, to dropping the ball entirely on Watergate. And, you know, apart from famously Woodward and Bernstein yeah. and the Washington Post, most new, news organizations were really reluctant to touch this story, especially before the 1972 election. And even afterwards, I think that the the press's role has been exaggerated a, a little bit. The, the press was reporting it, but, you know, where was the information coming from? It was coming from the congressional investigation right. of Nixon, right. mainly. So... Um, I think it's important not to overstate sure, the, yeah. the press's role in that, but but yeah, I think certainly Kennedy benefited from being just it, he was in office before the era of the adversarial press 
really took off. And you can see it change with, with Lyndon Johnson. And a lot of it is, I think we've been talking for a while, and I don't think we've mentioned the Vietnam War yet. No, we're talking about no, the 1960s and 70s. Um, but a lot of the adversarialism can be, can yeah. be traced to that and yeah. uh, the loss of, of trust between the, the press and the government, the people and the government as well. Um, and, and so, yeah, you, you see the change with, uh, with the press's treatment of Johnson versus Kennedy. Um, it's pretty stark. You know, the, the, they don't, the, the press doesn't report on, on Johnson's affairs, although they, certainly plenty of people knew about it. Uh, although they probably weren't as, as flagrant as Kennedy's right. or as widely known. <laughs> um, but at, but certainly the, the press's treatment of, of Johnson is, is different, and he can't win them over the same way that he saw JFK do. Partly this is because JFK was had such great charisma and was such a right. charmer and so at home with these uh, urban cosmopolitan reporters, uh, whereas LBJ was you know this this brash Texan and he and his his efforts sort of backfire you know he he invites journalists down to his ranch in Texas and you know he tries to show him a good time and mm. and thinks that he's being all grand and you know speeds around in his Lincoln Continental. With like a styrofoam cup full of scotch, and when he finishes the cup, he he slams the brakes on, and you know just uh, holds the empty cup out the window. And a ser- secret service agent comes in and he gives him a new one. But uh, you know he th- he thought this was like entertaining in the grand style, um, but it, it didn't really work. And you know the stories come out about him, and the press actually reports the they don't report the the the, the scotch and the styrofoam cups. They report that he's speeding around in his, in his Lincoln and he's driving through cow pastures and, and right. blowing the bullhorn to startle the cows for no apparent reason. Um, and it's not, it doesn't make him look good. And he, and he gets upset that they're not, you know, how can they do this to me after I've, after I've been entertaining them so nicely? And it, right. it, that's, you know, it's based on his understanding of how the press corps had behaved with presidents for years. You know, he'd been in Washington for years. He'd, he'd seen it. Um, and things really began to change um, in the Johnson administration. Hmm. So you, you mentioned the Vietnam War, and we should talk about it because, of course, it's very important. And one of the things that strikes me about the Vietnam War is that it was a, a very visual war. There, there's so many images that are coming back from Vietnam, but that's really an issue with television, that the TV can show, TV news can show all these images. And newspapers can't. I mean, certain images they can. There's the the famous one at uh, My Lai, right? Yeah, like, My Lai. Uh, the front page is um, yeah, which is which of course say. is you know perhaps yeah. perhaps the most important image of the 20th century. Like it's you know a very important photograph. But in general, like you can't have the same type of impact of a newspaper reporter going behind the lines and, and doing a story. It's there's it's not quite the same as you know when 60 minutes does it for instance right like cuz there's yeah. the visual element to it so i'm wondering how did newspapers deal with the vietnam war and is there an increased use of photographs uh, that go along with the change in journalism as you talk about you know more entertainment based is, is there a greater use of images um yeah, you know, I, I was actually expecting to find a, a larger increase in the number of photographs appearing in the paper in this period. I didn't really find that, though. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, I, I think that the, the main way that they tried to compete, you know, they, they can't compete by adding a couple more photographs. You know, that's right. not going to yeah. enable them to compete with 
with a half an hour newscast or even with a you know a Life or a Look magazine. Right. Um, so I think really the way they tried to compete was by having a more interpretive take on the news, mm-hmm. um, more analytical. Right. You know, they're not just going to tell you what happened yesterday, what some high-ranking official said. We're going to explain what it all means in a kind of sophisticated way that you can't get from the short half-hour newscast, you know, which if you print out the script of a half-an-hour newscast, it'll fill maybe one newspaper page. So right. you, yeah. you can obviously get into a lot more detail in, in the newspaper or in a magazine than you can on a TV newscast. So, um, so yeah, I mean, certainly hard to overstate the, the visual impact of, of Vietnam. And, and the fact that unlike in most other American wars, there was uh, very little censorship, and these images were, were, it was possible to get them out. You know, the, the My Lai images, they were taken by an army photographer, right. after all. So that's, that's a, big, a big part of it, too. And, and, but certainly, you know, the, the living room war, it's been, it's been called. Right. And, uh, and yeah, I'm not going to dispute that, that aspect of the mm-hmm. historical conventional wisdom. Definitely the, the images had a, had a huge impact. As we're recording this, last night, I didn't see it, but Megyn Kelly aired the first of her series of shows, uh, and it was an interview with Donald Trump, and I haven't watched it yet, but what, what struck me in the last few weeks is that Megyn Kelly has gone around and has done the talk show circuit. She did Colbert, she did The Morning. She's Megyn on Kelly. the cover of Vanity Fair also. Well, oh, okay, there you go. So it's like so she's been, she's been out there, and one of the things that journalists always say, or claim, is that they want to report the news, they don't want to be the news. And certainly right. with, with, Me- as with Megyn Kelly, it's not entirely her fault that she became right. the news. She didn't, I don't think, seek this out. It, it sort of came upon her. But it struck me that this idea of reporters not being the news, I don't know where that comes from, because we, there's always been these really prominent newscasters who, to a certain degree, have been the news. Uh, in Canada, during the Second World War, Matthew Halton is a good example. And this notion, too, that, oh, there are no more Walter Cronkites. But Walter Cronkite was a major figure and, to a certain degree, a celebrity. In his day, Woodward and Bernstein became celebrities by reporting what they reported. So I'm wondering, is, is this notion of reporters and this idea that they have to be anonymous and that they can't be famous, they don't want to be in the news, is that just an invented trope? Or is that something that actually changed with the commodification, with this entertainment part of news and selling papers by having notable reporters. Yeah, I think it is a little bit of a trope, but I think there's also a difference between a a television reporter and a print reporter. Um, You know, a a television reporter is kind of a a brand and a personality. They they have to be because they they want to be recognized and and known by the wider public if, Mm -hmm. if they're, you know, if, if they're not recognizable and and familiar then they're not going to be successful and i think you know it may be a little false modesty on the part of of print reporters because probably most of them harbor some ambition sure. to, to become like either the the lead correspondent or a or a columnist which is a, yeah. a much more high visibility position but i think it's you know it's an ethical thing too if you're just writing a a, a run of the mill story then if if the story is about you, the reporter, instead of the subject matter, that you know that mm-hmm. makes it seem like you're somehow ego-seeking or you're not doing your job properly. Mm-hmm. But that that leads to an interesting question too, though. Mm-hmm. If the ultimate goal of a reporter then is to be, say, a columnist 
or today if you're writing a news in a newspaper, you know, to get regular spots on cable news because yeah. you, you can not only raise your profile but you can make a lot more money mm-hmm. doing that. Does that then force us to reinterpret or be more critical of what is being reported? That sure they might not be reporting about themselves, but knowing the reporter's end game, if it is to be a columnist, say, like they're going to report on things that would have a higher profile, for instance. And does that then again contribute to? I keep using the word commodification, but mm-hmm. like this idea of news is entertainment. News news is a business, and does that ultimately then hurt the people who are consuming it? I mean, news is a business, and I don't think there's anything wrong or shameful about that. You know, as as long as it's a business that's that's run with certain ethical standards. Sure. But yeah, I, th- I think people should always be a little bit skeptical of of what they consume in in the mass media. Um, but I don't think there's any uh, any deficit of that. You know, I think yeah. people are very skeptical, and, and they sometimes uh, contort themselves a little too much in in being worried about trying to, you know, detect some ulterior motives. You know, sometimes the, the, the story is, is just the story, and, you know, there, there's not always, <laughs> you know, a thousand uh, machinations at work behind mm-hmm. the scenes, but certainly uh, a, a little informed skepticism uh, right. never hurts. Right. Does it maybe contribute to things that perhaps could get covered not being covered? Like, I'm thinking, you know, the mm-hmm. stuff that... that John Oliver does, for mm-hmm. instance, where he where he talks a lot about sort of local right. s- things that happen on the local level that have national significance. But you know, he did this story this week about nine one one, and that nine one one centers are the the funds that or the charge that you get on your cell phone bill that is supposed to go to nine one one in a lot of states gets siphoned off to other things. Like mm-hmm. that strikes me as a, a story that yeah would normally or perhaps should be reported by a newspaper locally like in New York yeah. state like the an Albany reporter should be on that but because it doesn't have like it's not a quote unquote sexy story yeah like is the media mm-hmm. in moving towards this entertainment model oh, missing yeah. a lot that perhaps they might have otherwise gotten yeah probably and i mean of course, it's easier to go after low-hanging fruit, and especially most yes. of the news business has been so decimated by by layoffs and budget cuts in recent years that it's it's hard, and, and it's sometimes hard to, to justify putting so many resources into a more investigative story that's probably not going to pay off in, in immediate monetary terms, although it might pay off in the long term when you're talking about the, the, the brand value. But I, I do think news organizations are still doing this kind of work. I mean, I didn't see the John Oliver piece. I like what he does a lot, and, and that sounds like, like a really good one. But I would bet that, that his staff didn't do the original reporting on that. They're probably right. drawing on, on newspaper or magazine reports. But, I mean, it does. It speaks to the, to the changing business model, and it, it, it was kind of an, an anomaly um, in the, the golden age of newspapers that this very expensive investigative reporting, which probably isn't the reason most people were subscribing to the newspaper that it got so much funding the funding was coming from car ads and and classifieds that are 
on Craigslist now, right. um, and and things like that. And so it, it was never self-funding. And so it's interesting now to see a lot of new business models and funding models come up. There are a lot of uh, cooperatives devoted to investigative reporting now, and um, there are a lot of them operating on a nonprofit basis or have uh, funding from foundations. And uh, I think increasingly that'll, that'll probably be the way a lot of investigative reporting gets gets funded in the future, right, right, right. Uh, apart from what's done by some of the some of the big, you know, sort of uh, last ones standing right. of the of the legacy media organizations. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, though, in, in talking to you, I get the sense that this idea of the good old days, you know, the good old days never really existed. Like they, they mm-hmm. it's sort of this like with everything. Like we get this romantic <laughs> vision of the past. It was a simpler time, and but that's not really the way it, newspapers worked. I think that's true. I think that's true that the, that, the, that the good old days never quite existed. I mean, I, that coverage has has gotten um, broader and and more sophisticated and more useful over the years. Um, especially if you're thinking the good old days were back in the in the '40s and '50s. I think the that newspapers in more recent decades are are far superior. If you go back and look at them now in terms of quality of writing and just having material that's interesting um, right. and insightful. Uh, I mean, one, if you, if you talk to people who work in the business, then they have a point about the good old days, right? Because right. certainly the good old days in terms of profitability are far behind. Yeah. Um, the accountants can talk about the good old days. Yeah. 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 I mean, but the, but the, but the employees too. I mean, the, the LA Times and the period I'm looking at now, they were told... Uh, well, never fly business class, only first class. Oh, you know, wow. Whereas today it would be never fly business class, only coach, of right. course. Um, I mean, it's a, a, absurd, the, the kind of of, uh, of money they were making and, mm-hmm. and the way they were able to, to lavish uh, benefits and, and, and spend so much devoted to, to quality news gathering. It's, it's really kind of, kind of sad today the way that, it's, that, the, um, that a lot of newsrooms have been have been hollowed out. Mm-hmm. Although there's also a lot more uh, new ventures and, and new ways of reporting right. news that I think are gonna gonna fill some of that gap. Right, right. And there's this issue too, like in Ottawa, there's two of the dailies are gonna share a newsroom, but maintain separate editorial content. And you think to yourself, mm-hmm. like, come on, like that, like, and, and so again, it speaks to how things are changing yeah. and how how not only the business itself, but those of us who consume news. Uh, we, we, I think we were, it's important to be conscious of these things and understand. I, I tell my students all the time with pop culture, like just be critical of everything that you you consume. It doesn't mean not critical like negative, but right. like just be aware that everything that you get, there's a reason why it's being made, mm-hmm. and just try and understand what that reason is, and then you can really assess it in an intelligent way. And I think with news, we have to do the same thing, and, and not that that hasn't always been the case, but. Uh, it's certainly true uh, now. Is, is it's not always apparent who the source of the news is. So we really, it's almost like we have to investigate where the news is coming from before we can really think about it in a critical way. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a fascinating time now. Before you go, because I could talk about this sort of stuff all day. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, you were on Jeopardy, <laughs> right? Not only were you on Jeopardy, you won Jeopardy. 
I had a great run. I, I managed to win three games, and it was it was a really fantastic experience. Okay, so so I'm asking because recently there was this controversy that they weren't going to let Canadians on the, sh- the show anymore, and I believe they backtracked on that. But just take us behind the scenes. Like I know that the show, so the show airs every day, but how many games? Did you play in it? Like, so you played four games total? Uh, yes, and they happened to be all in one day, pretty much in succession, although there was a lunch break. So, yeah, they, they record five episodes a day. Okay, now is that perhaps unfair <laughs> to the, the winner? Like, that you have to go play your fourth... Like, you had to be exhausted in that fourth game. Um, well, sure. Yes, I, let's say I was exhausted, and that's my excuse for losing. <laughs> um, no, a little bit. I, I. But then again, the the returning champion also has the advantage of some added... You know, confidence and, and being more comfortable up there right. than the challengers, and and a little extra experience using the buzzer. So yeah, it's, it's it. I, I was definitely a little bit drained by my final game, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, I've got. I really can't say I have any complaints about the experience. <laughs> okay, now now what we see on TV is that basically like do they tape live, like live to tape, mm-hmm. or are there moments where the judges have to come in? Uh, that we don't see? Like, is it basically a, a, a tight 20-minute game? Or does the game yeah. take longer and it's edited down? No, no, they run a really tight ship. It's a, it's a tight... The only times they, that they that they really make edits, that at least the, the time that I was there, uh, are when there's, like, a technical glitch. So, mm-hmm. for instance, sometimes it's a video clue and, and Alex Trebek will say, you know, here's Sarah with the clue, and nothing. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no video. Um, so you know things like that. Obviously, they have to they have to stop it. And sometimes, once or twice, I think maybe Alex sort of uh, he mispronounced something or, or tripped on his mm-hmm. words a little bit reading the clue. And the, the contestants don't stop, you know, because we're reading the clue on the screen. Right. We're not. It's not like him, him saying one word wrong is going to throw the contestants off. Right. So you know the contestants answer and, and the game proceeds as usual. But then at the next commercial break, the the uh, the crew will just re-record Alex mm. Trebek um, reading the question with the corrected word. Okay. So, well, so, so yeah. what type what type of screen do you have? Because on TV, of course, it's it's the video yeah. board, mm-hmm. and those screens look like a whatever, like at most a thirty two inch TV screen. Yep. Like, do you have something on your podium that has the clue in front, or no, do you have to read that? That was one of the that was one of the trickiest parts, actually. So, if anyone is ever going to be a contestant, you know, and you wear glasses or contacts, make sure your prescription <laughs> is up to date. Because, yeah, you know, when you're watching at home, the each clue fills up your whole TV yeah. screen. But no, when you're a player, there's that big board, and it's it's I don't know, maybe thirty feet away, forty feet away, and and it's not like the each clue takes up the whole board. It's just in that one little box. So yeah, you definitely need to read those clues closely. It's not quite as easy as as when you're at home. Hmm. Yeah, this, this is so interesting. And do they <laughs> do they give you any tips on the buzzer? Because I've heard the the buzzer, the the Jeopardy guy who won yeah. whatever thirty in a row. Um, yeah, Jennings, Ken Jennings. Yeah, more than thirty. I think um, he gets up to almost eighty. Like that's crazy. That's amazing. Um, but he, I, I saw an interview with him. He said it was all about the buzzer and and getting the timing right on the buzzer. Yeah. So what, like, is there, do you know when you can buzz in? Yeah, so after, so you, your buzzer is not active until there's a Jeopardy staffer who flicks a little switch, and when the staffer flicks this switch, a bunch of light bulbs on either side of the uh, of the question board turn on, and then you're able to buzz in. 
but if you buzz before the the flick is the switch is flicked, then you get locked out for one quarter of a second. You're buzzing oh. for a quarter of a second. So that's so that's when the other contestants can you know they're trying to buzz also. And generally, the the staffer he, he just waits for Alex to finish reading the clue. And right when Alex finishes reading the clue, he flicks the switch. So there's there's a, a long running debate among Jeopardy contestants, which is do you watch for the light bulbs or do you just listen to Alex's voice right. in terms of how to time your clicking? Because there's going to be a bit of a delay between when you see the the light and that you would hit the thing. Right, you know, I mean, I don't know, the signal goes from your brain to your thumb or whatever it is. It it takes just that much time. Because, yeah, most of the time, especially with the lower value questions, uh, at least two, if not all three of the contestants are going to know the answer. So, of course, it comes down to who manages to click in. And that's why, you know, and you never know if you've clicked in too early or too late. So that's why I I think I looked a little silly on there because I was actually, you could see... My buzzer, I was holding it at like at, at like chest level, whereas maybe most people hold it below the podium, right. and so you can sort of see me clicking frantically. But that's what they tell you to do, and it makes sense because you don't know. Maybe you click too early and you got locked out, but you don't know exactly when your quarter of a second lockout right. is going to end. So you just need to keep wailing away at that at that button. Right. That's interesting <laughs> that you had it. You had it up because I, whenever I watch, I, I I think about when people are like why like. Like I like the people who have it like they, they have their hands behind their back, and it's like I think of it as like a duck because I assume that their 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 hand is going crazy hitting the buzzer, right. and the same as like a duck's legs are going crazy, <laughs> but on top it's all calm, right? That's what I right, think of it right, as. Yes. And I like I don't know it's it's like the buzz is like yeah my hand was going crazy in in full view of uh, of all those people <laughs> watching at home so. Well, that's that's really exciting, and so the three time Jeopardy champion, and then. <laughs> What do they do? Do they send you, like, a, a check for the gross amount that you won? Uh, they do, minus California state income tax. Okay. And they send you a check uh, several months later. All right. And um, then did you have to pay Massachusetts tax on that, too? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know... It's a regular it, income. It, it, it's, it's taxed like any other income. Okay. I thought, it, I, I, for some reason, I thought it might be taxed higher, like gambling winnings are taxed higher, but uh, not to my knowledge or... I hope not. I haven't gotten audited yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's super exciting. You, I have to say, you are, to my knowledge, the first Jeopardy champion we've had on the show. Great. Thank so, you. Good so, distinction. Con- so congratulations. The book, you, you just submitted the proposal, so hopefully it'll be a book at some point in the future. And yeah. uh, when it is a book, we'd be happy to have you on again because uh, there's be no delighted. way we've covered everything that we could uh, about this stuff. So it's really interesting. So that is Matt Pressman, recent graduate of Boston University, moving in about a month from when we're recording this down to New Jersey to take up a faculty position in the Department of Journalism at Seton Hall. So thanks so much for doing this. Thank you very much, Sean. Enjoyed it. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, it's HistorySlam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.